When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Die Hard on a Blank, the podcast where we explore the influence of Die Hard on action cinema, one action movie at a time. I'm Philip Gawthorne, and with me is... I'm Liam Billingham, and Phil... Yes? Don't you ever ruin my hitman career, pursuing your own career as a police officer, thus forcing me to become obsessed with you and ruin your life. I'll try not to. That would be really good, because it's all I'm thinking about. I come in here today to podcast with you. I have big aspirations. I understand. Don't you ruin them. I understand. Why are we talking about this? Because today's film is Ricochet, a.k.a. Well, it's it's the diehard ECU. What's the ECU? Extended Cinematic Universe. Oh, I wasn't talking about Ricochet. I just don't want you to ruin my career as a hitman. I thought we were keeping that on the the DL. Oh, yeah, oh, no. Podcasting, like, the the economics of it are tough, so I I wouldn't judge. Got to merc some guys on (laughs) the side to make a living. Just to keep This murder brought to you by... Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Can I sell ads on my murders? Is that that how that works? I don't know how how the marketing and promotional side of being a hitman would work. Well, you're the screenwriter, so I feel like... Let me give Ooh, it some. That thought. would be a very strong uh, Russell Mulcahyan satire of uh, of Hitman. He makes a movie about how you market yourself as a actually. Hitman. This is starting to sound like a good idea. Like, <laughs> I'm going to have to take let's off continue and continue this start off. Get, off write my... some notes. So, um, yes, Ricochet is in the Die Hard ECU. So, what do I mean by that? Well, all will be revealed. We'll we'll get to it. Um, this movie came out. So, one of the things that's important to talk about with the show is that we are going in chronological order. Correct. Um, so this film, uh, the last one that we did was Toy Soldiers, which came out. My guy, on, Yogurt. Um, your, your boy, Yogurt, uh, et al. Uh, <laughs> Toy Soldiers came out April 26th of 1991. This film came out in October 4th, 1991. Can I ask you a quick question? Yes. Do you think the guy who played Yogurt, I'm <laughs> sorry, I'm never going to let this go in Toy oh, Soldiers. Boy. They were like, so you're in a film called to- Toy Soldiers. And he was like, yeah, I am. And they were like, what's it about? And he was like, well, there's this guy named Yogurt. Like he pitched himself as them. He's really good with tech, but they call him Yogurt. I, I I don't know what to. I feel that the the, the yogurt thing is uh, is going to be a this rabbit hole. This is now hole. a yogurt podcast. <laughs> so, but not about the food, but right, but specifically yeah. about the guy that played about yogurt. His character. So, um, what is what? Had you seen this film? What are you? What's your kind of um, you know, relationship? With I'd it? seen the trailer, and my relationship to this movie is what often my relationship is to movies of this era that I didn't see, which is like, ooh, that's Denzel Washington with a gun on the on the box now. The I feel like the VHS cover of this movie is a little iconic. I agree. I yeah. remember it kind of like frightening me as a kid when I would see it in stores. I was like that because in the UK it's instead of an R, it's an eighteen certificate, which is like a red yeah. circle, which is like the red circle of death. Like this is going to be scary and adult, right? So when I remember seeing it, because I would have been ten, I guess when I remember yeah. it, or ten or twelve or eleven, so, eleven something like that, and kind of seeing that, and it was something about it that looked 
frightening. So that's funny. I never noticed Lithgow in the in the background of the of the video cassette. I always just noticed Denzel Washington. So I always thought this was like kind of a straight ahead police procedural. So boy howdy was I surprised when I actually saw this movie this week. Cheerfully repellent is how I would describe yeah, Ricochet. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, there's this term called vulgar auteurism. I don't know if you've ever oh, heard that term that before. on. So vulgar auteurism is sort of this idea that developed probably in the early 2010s that that certain filmmakers need re- re- needed reappraisal because they weren't making the, like, high-quality studio pictures and, like, you know, it's often associated with Michael Bay or to some extent even De Palma, like like some where the subject okay. matter is lurid and and strange. This and is like, De Palma adjacent, actually. I it would is say, very De Palma show. adjacent. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and of course you have the Lithgow uh, connection. That Lithgow to kind of blow out, which is a great movie. And I think it's just that the the, the it's almost like masterful B pictures is mm. is one way that I think is helpful to think about this mm. movie, which we can talk a little bit about when we get into uh, the filmmaker. Maybe maybe you should, Phil. Will you give us some? Um, Fast facts, some top-line facts about the film Ricochet. I'd be delighted to do so. Thank you, Phil. So Ricochet was released by Warner Brothers in the U.S. on October 4th, 1991, directed by Russell Mulcahy and produced by Joel Silver, again, mm-hmm. and Michael Levy, who was also connected to um, the Die Hard world. He was an EP on uh, Die Hard 2. It stars Denzel Washington, John Lithgow, Ice-T, and Kevin Pollock. The screenplay was written by Stephen E. D'Souza, whose name you may be familiar with, based on a story by Fred Decker and Menno Majors. Uh, Fred Majors. Decker, Majors. Majors. I'm Majors. Not terrib- forgive me, he's Menno? actually a very important screenwriter. So let me, um, let's pause here for a second. Fred yeah. Decker. I believe Fred Decker wrote one of my favorite movies of the 80s. Monster, Monster Squad. Squad. Yeah. I knew you were going to know. Oh, yeah. I, as a kid, my sure. dad was like, you have to stop renting Monster Squad. We've watched Monster Squad too many times. This is before you could buy a VHS for like a reasonable price. I rented it like two times a month. For how, much was it to rent, how much was it to rent a movie in the U.S.? Oh, that's a great question. Um, at that point, I feel like you could, well, you could either get like a one day release, two day release or like week long. Right. And I feel like I actually worked at the video store, shockingly, that I rented it from much later. But it before probably, you became a hitman, before, before yeah. I became a, a hitman, very obsessed <laughs> with my marketing. Um, I was probably like two bucks to three dollars to yeah, rent a movie yeah. for a, for an, an old movie for a week. And at that point, it was well out of the new release. I remember category. being outraged when the price went up to two pounds, 75 pence instead of 250. Yeah, I remember reading I that Guardian curious. article about you. Yeah, <laughs> you're sort of notorious. For Burn that. the shit down. Uh, the Monster Squad, for those that don't know, is a movie. It's kind of like the Goonies meets a monster movie. It's about a group of kids who somehow realize that Dracula, the mummy, Frankenstein and the 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 creature from the Black Lagoon come to life and they have to kill them. Uh, who's Menno Mayes? Menno Mayes? So I believe he wrote um, The Color Purple. Wow. Um, so actually a very distinguished um, screenwriter of a really, really impressive filmography. But I don't want to talk too much about him because it may be coming up in trivia later Ooh. on. So, um, How much money did this film make? 
So it grossed um, an estimated 21 million at Ooh. the box office. Uh, there's no info. I did some research. There was no info on its exact budget. Um, so, but I'm guess I would guess this movie would be a, probably around 12 to 15 million. Okay. You know, maybe maybe a little I less. Maybe a little less. Maybe I a little it would be less. Like an eight to 10 million dollar movie. Because at that movie. point, Denzel wouldn't have, although he had won won an Oscar for Glory for before Glory this, yeah. as supporting actor, he wouldn't have the same like fee that he would command. I mean, his fee now would be more than the entire um, budget of this movie, but um, it was a home, I think it was a home video, you know, success. And that's kind of why I, I associate this film very particularly with the home video yeah. era. There was something about that box that was like, uh -oh. Iconic. Yeah, it was, there was something very, yeah, it was striking. Um, speaking of that, how I, one of the things I thought might be helpful to mention is how you can watch the film currently. Um, oh, free trial on Cinemax. Yeah, that's, that's how I watched it. Annoyingly, it had been on HBO Max forever. And then yes. as soon as we do it, of course, it, co it, it comes off. It there must be, be a mall on. inside yeah. this organization that's that time. But speaking of which, I have to cancel my Cinemax free trial. So let me just dial <laughs> that up on the phone. <laughs> it's a great way to uh, great way circumvent to, the system. It's also a great way to forget um, that you signed up for it and a month later be like, why have I spent $40 on uh, AMC Plus, which has happened to me twice in my in my life. So, Phil. Yes. This podcast. Yes. <laughs> it's called Die Hard on a Blank. Apparently. It's apparently not called the Monster Squad podcast. Yeah. <laughs> it's called Die Hard on a Blank. Will you tell the folks at home, mm. or in their car, or at the gym, mm. or wherever mm -hmm. they happen to be, what the term Die Hard on a Blank means for the layman? Yes. For, who's, for... Who's a ricochet stand who's just like, ooh, there's a podcast about sure. ricochet. Gotta, re gotta listen. Yes. For the, for the uninitiated, um, Die Hard on a Blank refers to any um, action movie that utilizes this, this particular storytelling paradigm broadly. Bad guys take over a blank. Bus, boat, uh, you know, but golf course, roadhouse, whatever it might be, and yeah. it's up to one man or woman to stop them. That's broadly um, the the categorization. But with it, but our show, while we're going to look at all of the direct yeah. imitators, we we are expanding the scope to look at any film that uh, Die Hard has influenced or that contains. Die-hard DNA. Absolutely. And I think it's also worth saying that it's a bit of an industry term for when you're pitching a project in the universe. You might say, oh, my project is die-hard on a golf course. Sure, or it's, a, it's shorthand. Die-hard yeah. on a bus, yeah. right? And yes, part of that is discussing the die-hard DNA. Now, this is definitely not a conventional die-hard on a. But no, as you no. said early on, it... And I didn't realize this until you sort of pointed it out to me. It, it takes place in a potential extended universe. And exactly. along with that, probably the reason for that is that there are a lot of people that worked on Die Hard, that so, worked on this film. Yeah, so so this is a revenge, as you, as you pointed out, this is a revenge thriller. So therefore, it's a very different story shape to Die Hard. Mm -hmm. But it contains an astonishingly high amount of Die Hard DNA. Die Hard DNA. Die Hard DNA. Um, we have, again, the ubiquitous producer Joel Silver, Whoop. Michael Levy, as I mentioned, with EP on Die Hard 2. Screenplay written by Die Hard co-screenwriter Stephen E. D'Souza. Same costume designer Marilyn, Marilyn Vance, billed here as Marilyn Vance Straker. And it also features a number of Die Hard cast members, one of whom is 
Matt Landers, who played the SWAT captain Mitchell in Die Hard. The send in the car guy? Exactly. Where is he in this movie? He plays uh, Chief Floyd. He pops up at the beginning and is like bitching about like stupid rookie. Uh, he shouldn't have like, oh. he shouldn't have done his job and got that guy. He should have done, you know. He's the he's, send in the car. He's the send, send in the car. Send in the car. Send in the car. Send in the car. He's a Joel Silver staple. He also has a part in uh, Commando in the SWAT truck that Arnold blows up. You so know, I haven't he, seen. I think he's in Action Jackson as well. I haven't seen Commando in a real long time. I should uh, sort it out. Friday night, I should probably pop that one yeah. on. Hey, honey, <laughs> what are you doing? You want to watch Commando? That's what I. That's what I. <laughs> that's the battle that I'm constantly waging. And you haven't in been home house. in three or four months, right? It's, it's <laughs> tricky, right? I do sleep on the couch a lot. Um, it's watching Commando. <laughs> yeah, of so going it works to... out. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, some of the other Next die up hard, on uh... Phil's sad couch watching, <laughs> Lethal Weapon 4 with Jet Li. Yeah, it's all good. Um, George Christie, who plays Dr. Hasseldorf in Die Hard. He's the author of the book Hostage, Terrorist, Terrorist, Hostage, A Study in Duality. He appears briefly as a talk show host. Did you, I don't know if you catch these sort of gray-haired, gen, older gentleman with yeah. uh, circular glasses. Um, yes, of course, because he watches the special, the, that crazy segment. Yeah, yeah, where it's like they're saying some really It's like a public access conspiracy. program. Yeah, yeah. yeah, where it's sort of like conspiracy theory central, yeah. really disturbing uh, stuff. So he's in it. At, we also have John Amos, who <sighs> played Major Grant in Die Hard 2, features here as Denzel's and a wonderful character's actor. father, uh, Reverend Styles. But here is the really big one. Okay. Mary Ellen Trainer, who is the blonde-haired actress uh, who you may remember from Die Hard as the news anchor Gail Wallens, appears here as Gail Wallens, the exact same character, and she has a much bigger role. She's now a roving reporter in the field. She interacts directly with Denzel's character on multiple occasions. She's pursuing a story about him, meaning, as you say, Ricochet takes place in the Die Hard extended cinematic universe. So it's almost like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but for for Joel Silver. Exactly. I mean so, and that this is this is not a theory. This is like unambiguous. This is absolutely completely uh correct and undeniable. But if you want to take doing this, a spin-off podcast yeah. called Valverde. Yeah. Oh. All right. So listen to this. Phil. Phil has been. I haven't. Phil has not slept in days because he's been watching Commando. But also working on his working Val on Verde. Tell right. me about the Val Verde okay, cinematic so if you're, universe again, if, theory. If you're listening to this in the car, pull over. Pull over. If you're listening on at the, the train, gym, get off the train. Go walk at least. Go to the front of the train right. and demand that the driver stop the if train. If you're watching, the, listening to this while watching Commando to see if it syncs up. Press pause on command, <laughs> and that's the only time I would ever ask you to do that because that is a transgressive act. But th this is that important. Okay, deep breath. All right. Now, to, so speaking of the Valverde cinematic universe, to quote Hans Gruber, I read the article in Forbes. And I mean that quite literally because there is an article in Forbes written by film journalist Daniel Baldwin, no relation, that goes into great detail about this. And he speculates that there's, there's a total of 22 films that theoretically fall under the Valverde mega movieverse banner, all of which are Fox releases but not all Joel Fox. Silver a lot of them are but not um, but not but not all so his theory was that this would include the entire Die Hard franchise the entire Predator franchise then the and the entire Alien franchise which are connected to the Predator Predatorverse via the Alien, Alien versus Predator, Predator crossover sure. films 
fun, just sidebar, fun fact about Aliens. There's actually a piece of music from James Horner's Alien score in Die Hard. I don't know if you knew that. It's called, it's called Resolution in Hyperspace, and it plays over the moment where Al Powell shoots Carl at the end of the movie. It was a temp track that McTiernan liked, so they, they kept it, but it's actually on the Aliens soundtrack, but not the Die Hard soundtrack. And it's not actually... You can hear very, very faint echoes of it in Aliens, but the entire thing is un, un- wow. unequivocally. I had no idea. The music from Die Hard. If you, you, if you have an, you know, if you have a subscription and you can check out, or you probably just find it on YouTube. I was going to say if you have an Apple Music subscription or whatever thing you use, Resolution and Hyperspace on the Alien soundtrack is the music from Die Hard. When is when it on Carl the? Di- can you killed. get the Die Hard soundtrack? Is it on the Die, Die Hard soundtrack? Is weirdly out of circulation it's become like a, a, you bought a real... all the rights right that would happen <laughs> and buried it no <laughs> it, it's one of the, it's become like a, um very sought after in those circles but you cannot get it anywhere because believe me i've tried so i believe it back onto the the valverde um movie mega megaverse now if you include the aliens films there's another film that you could make an argument for which is underwater also a Fox release. Ah. Now, I was a contributor on Underwater, and I do so I do know a little few bits of Wait, interesting... Wait, are you Kristen Stewart? In- <laughs> Look, my... What I do at night <laughs> is none of your business. <laughs> you encompass... You're, right? You contain multitudes. <laughs> like, don't worry about it. So, now... So, I do know a bit of interesting inside info, and all I'm going to say is if you're curious about this particular theory about how underwater may be connected to the alien universe, watch the film very closely at minute 18 because there is an interesting Easter egg for the evil Minute 18 of underwater. Minute 18 of underwater. Which I believe is on Hulu. But buy the movie on Blu-ray or iTunes because I'm on the commentary track. This is such a... What? This this is just a long theory so you could sell (laughs) DVDs. Listen, listen. We're going to promote your hitman business. So just, you know... XNA on the hitman. Quid pro quo. Um, Now, you you can also include Speed, which is connected to the Die Hard universe via the use of the Pacific Courier Company, which appears in... Die Hard of the Vengeance. Yep, and that means Speed 2 would also be connected. So the Valverde mega movieverse is quite the rabbit hole. Yeah, I feel like we need to talk to this Daniel Baldwin figure, if that's his real name, and maybe do a Valverde bonus bonus episode or something. It, it like was that. it was kind of fascinating, and he yeah. made a, he made a great case a, a great case for it. I'm fascinated by that kind of stuff, uh, and I like that. Um, I like that there was sort of an era where people were hinting at it, but didn't. It wasn't like central to under the mythology of it. Like that's kind of a fun kind of a it, side. It's interesting bar. to think that that Die Hard, in a way, you know, was part of this now the extended cinematic universe thing is uh, de rigueur, right? Yeah. Like that is almost become I'm working on my model. Hitman extended cinematic universe. <laughs> not not the Hitman video game turned into a my own Hitman project. So, yeah, I, I mean, uh, but and Tarantino kind of did it a few years later in the 90s. With Red Apple some, cigarettes. Was, and, and yeah, uh, there were connections like a Scagnetti character and the Vega Brothers were the Vega Brothers. Things like this. But actually, this preceded all of that with the Commando, um, Predator, and Die Hard 2 Valverde connection and then expanded from there. So and again, Die Hard ahead of the curve. Uh, it's Vincent you know, Vega and... Vic Vega. Vic Vega. Vic Vega's Mr. Blonde. Mr. Are Blonde, you a Vincent yeah. or a Vic guy? That's a tough question. I didn't know there was. I didn't know how to choose. I'm a Vic Vega guy. All about Mr. Blonde. He's I, so yeah, uh, Michael I, I, Madsen. It's a shame we never got the Vega Brothers movie. That, that would have been sick. It was mooted. Um, well, but, this has really clearly gone off the rails. But, but, but we're that's here fine. to talk specifically about Ricochet. Right. And to be clear, if you haven't seen Ricochet, that's okay. Go watch it. But you know what we're hoping to illuminate and elucidate here is just the connections between these movies, right? I do think that this 
movie is worth watching. But but we and we can get into that. But but before we do, let's talk about the anatomy of an action movie. Okay. And let's list the tenets. We live in a twilight world. Let's list the tenets of of what make up a uh, an action movie from your perspective. Yeah, so basically, um, I uh, this was a, a sort of uh, system that I put together to analyze the components that make an action movie successful with Die Hard being the kind of uh, benchmark. That, the A-plus version. Yeah, full marks in every category. So those tenets would be the premise slash the plot, i.e. concept and story, ticking clock, the plot device that creates narrative tension and urgency, the hero, self-explanatory, the villain, uh, the action itself, set pieces, stunts, imagery, and the humor, funny dialogue, scenes, moments, or characters that add levity. <laughs> Trick, tricky movie when it comes to humor, this yeah, one. Yeah, it's a laugh riot. Will you, with that in mind, will you tell us what the premise, what happens in Ricochet? Yes. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Okay, so Nick Stiles, played by Denzel Washington, um, in his first foray into the action genre, really, is a rookie LAPD beat cop who accidentally becomes a celebrity when his takedown of the violent hitman, Earl Talbot Blake, is caught on camera. These, this high-profile incident accelerates Stiles' career. He becomes a crusading assistant DA on track to political stardom. But meanwhile, the embittered Blake spends years in prison plotting his revenge. And when he gets out... He sets sights on making Styles' life a living hell. If you haven't seen this movie, you know what I think is a, even though it was not inspired by this movie, but you know what I thought a lot about while watching this movie? Sideshow Bob from The Simpsons. Wow, that tracks actually. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that clearly, the side, there's a whole episode of The Simpsons where Sideshow Bob gets out and gets on trial and escapes. That is Cape Fear inspired. Cape yeah. Fear, by the way, if you haven't seen it, is a and, great and that movie. was, Cape Fear is very much like, th these two movies came and, and, came out around the same time yeah. and Cape Fear really sucked all the oxygen out of this movie. Yeah, but it, it has a similar, similar yeah. there's like a little bit, there's actually a lot of bit of, of Earl Talbot Blake in Sideshow Bob. I think like for the real heads, Ricochet may have inspired that as much because there's like a hysterical quality to that that episode. I mean like every episode of The Simpsons, but that's, it's a real, it's a real 
Cape Fear inspired bit, but I th- I think there's some ricochet in there too. What I think is interesting about this film from a structural standpoint is, you know, a typical revenge thriller with the exception of like Cape, Cape Fear, which, which we're talking about. They tend to, it's the protagonist that is wronged in the first act, right? Like you think, say John Wick or Mad Max or, you know, any kind of Ms. 45 or, or any, any kind of like Ooh, classic revenge yeah. um, movie, something atrociously awful happens to the main character. And then um, you know, around the, the first act, they're, they're, you know, and then they have to build themselves up from the ashes and seek seek revenge on on the culprits. This this is an inversion of that because it's um, the the protagonist is it, the the person seeking revenge is the antagonist. Right. It's like an it's an inverse. Mm-hmm. There's yeah. an inverse. It's an inverse thing. revenge thriller, which I think is quite interesting. But because Cape Fear, which of course was a remake um, of a 1950s you know, film, yeah, and if, yeah, um, so. So the ticking clock in this film is is an unusual one because of that structure, because it, the ticking clock really comes more from the tension of what will happen when Blake and Styles eventually collide, I would say. Um, yeah, and I, I think that this is a, an appropriate moment, if you'll, if you'll indulge me, to talk a little bit about the style of this movie, mm. because it is drawing tension from what, you know, is often the dramatic irony, which is that we know that Styles has escaped. We know that he is... Blake. Excuse me. We know that Blake has escaped. We know that he is ex- slowly, in some ways slowly, exacting his revenge on Nick Styles, played by Denzel Washington. But nobody else does or believes Denzel Washington, right? Mm. So there, Nick Styles. Mm-hmm. So there is a bit of a dramatic irony and a bit of like a, like I would say almost like a Hitchcockian like gaslighting quality to this movie. Like the lead character, everyone's being gaslit into thinking he's crazy, right? Or whatever. Right, right. But this is not a measured piece of filmmaking. This is a... It's lurid. It's lurid. It's, it's, it's preposterous. It's melodramatic. It's, it's melodramatic. larger than life. But not in the way that, say, Roadhouse was larger than life, where there was a sense of fun to it. This is um, quite oppressive and quite ugly. It's an ugly um, movie. Nihilistic and, and uh, mean. It's a it, mean movie. It's a mean movie. It's mean-spirited. Uh, it, it, like... So vulgar auteurism is this sort of like they're it's not it's not aspiring to a kind of like classically high art, right? It's not a okay. It's it's sort of like the the subject matter is lurid, it's down, it's dirty, and Mulcahy has this style that kind of like leans into the vulgar. Like he's not not nothing about this movie is measured. It's very like. Uh, it sort of wallows in in depravity filth and, and de- filth. Yeah, yeah and de- and depravity and violence and grotesque and it's pretty uncompromising. You know? Like I don't know yeah. that the way it's Denzel extremely rough Denzel Washington's character is tortured in a multitude of ways in this film, and in fact yeah. they had to cut some of the torture of him out of the movie yeah. because it was very very extreme. And I, I can only imagine the footage that exists. You, when you think about what was floor. left, what's actually in the film is bad enough. The fact that they actually had to t- dial it down and cut things out, so I mean, it's pretty horrific. Right. I'm almost I almost feel uncomfortable talking about some of the things that um, he, uh, the, the, the nature of the torture in this film, it's very extreme. Yeah. We've said that a couple of times. This is a nasty movie to watch. And you know, it's funny, I was watching it my wife was sitting there watching it and she was watching it with me. I keep uh, sharing these observations because she keeps getting drawn in. She was like, there's something very off about this movie. She's like, like there's all good actors doing incredibly good work, but like the movie is bizarre and str- it's like everyone met the assignment, mm. right? Like everyone did their, like De Palma, um, De Palma, Lithgow is insane. 
Washington Begins, the film is this kind of like straight laced figure. And by the end, like, and it's a performance, but it's like a blathering lunatic, like kind of goes crazy, drinks too much. Like everyone is doing their jobs perfectly. Even Kevin Pollack, who has, who plays He's good Nick Stiles, yeah. a DA partner, who's like often a quite a reserved actor, in my mm. opinion, like kind of fits the bill really, really well. Like no one, no one in the movie did a bad job. It's well but cast. It's, it's well, well directed. It's, yeah, it's, there's some really strong direction in, in certain moments. I think it's more just the milieu and the tone is And just, the style. It's just repellent to right. some extent. It's, it's, it's morally just like you feel somehow violated in the way the character is violated. Nick right. Stiles' character is violated in a number of ways. Sexually. Like sexually, psychologically, psychologically. Physically. You know, um, it, it's deeply disturbing and you can't help uh, and maybe because Denzel is uh, is such an empathetic actor. Oh, and such an amazing you know, actor. I mean, incredible. his performance is, is extraordinary in this Yeah, he's film. unbelievable. It's way, better, it's way better than the film itself. Right. Um, should we talk about him or do you... we should I think the the one other thing that I would just say is that like I read a review of this film on Letterboxd uh, from a critic named Brandon Stressening and he he writes for a bunch of sites and he gave it five stars. He's mm. like I love this movie. I think it's like a forgotten gem and I when I watch this movie I have the feeling of I mean I'm paraphrasing here but like not enough directors go for it the way yeah. that Russell Mulcahy goes for it. And look it depends on your definition. If you're watching a movie, like it's not like you when you watch Die Hard, you're kind of having a good time. It's exciting. It's thrilling. It it if it's like a mainstream action movie, which is great. This movie is aspiring to make you feel bad. It's mm. a feel bad movie, mm. even. And at times, it's like, am I supposed to be laughing at this? It's kind of uncategorizable. And like, there's something to admire about a, an artist really swinging for that. Uh, yeah, I I'm he definitely is not hedging his bets. It, he's it's all in on a certain, you know, a certain tone and a certain style. I th I think it's an entertaining film and I think right. it's largely entertaining because of of Lithgow's performance. Lithgow's amazing, um, always amazing you in know, almost everything he does. And his performance really fits the the vibe of the film which right. is over the top in a good way. Um grotesque um, larger than life, bizarre, you know, mean. Just it, it, he is dialed into what this movie is. Yeah, I think everyone is, and I think Denzel brings a gravitas and humility, at least to the first half of the movie, that makes his shift into paranoia and uh, fear and uh, all these things like so powerful and palpable in the second half of the movie. Let's talk about. Yeah, let's, let's talk, talk about, about. So the hero. category two, yeah. the tenant number two, the hero. So the hero, Nick Styles, is given the nickname PK. Um, on account of the fact that he's a, a preacher's kid. He's a straight arrow family man. And I think that's significant because we're now into the post-McLean template of the everyman right. action hero, as opposed to the muscle-bound Superman of the 80s, the Schwarzeneggers, right. Stallones, Norrises, and Van Dams. Um, now in the 90s, they become much more everyman, uh, the, the action hero. It's the everyman action hero era. He's brave, he's streetwise, he's inventive, he's tenacious. So he begins the story as... Um, He's a he's a B cop, but he's also a law student, right? Right. He's a and he's a very ambitious one. He mm. rises from like beat cop to by saving by stopping Earl Tabbitt Blake to become a DA. But you and, know who he reminded me of a lot in this in this movie for a number of reasons was Obama, actually, because he was like he's a family man, he has two daughters, he's a legal scholar, he's a community organizer. Yeah. He kind of had that like uh, almost like a young 
Obama if he went right. in a slightly different direction. He also has political ambitions, but they're coming from a, a place of like sincerity, I think. And actually, he's genuinely engaged with his local community. Yeah. You know, so it. In well, my opinion about the, it's so it's a good. I think it's a good character. It's quite interesting yeah. the idea of like a cop, but he's trying to be a lawyer, and he becomes a lawyer. He's also successful. not anti-authoritarian in the way that the protagonist of so many. He's he's within the authority, right? Mm -hmm. He's choosing to engage in le in the, in the, being in the law enforcement and being a lawyer and prosecuting criminals. Like he's he's. He's as much a part of the state apparatus in, the, uh, in a way that like the other characters, like McLean's a cop, but McLean doesn't really like cops, mm. right? Mm. This guy is in. Yes. He's ambitious yeah. in that way. And, and, but and he's it's... also sort of got one foot in the other world with his mm -hmm. relationship with the Ice-T character, Odessa, who's right. like his childhood friend who they play basketball together. And, and then they, but they, he realizes like, okay, we're going to, we're on different tracks because Ice-T becomes like the local. Well, he steals a car, right? And, the, yeah. The, 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 there's a great basketball. Scene. I think that opening sequence is great. They're playing basketball and Ice-T has a, uh, uh, has stolen a car, and, and that kind of breaks their relationship. Yeah, because Denzel Denzel's on the up and up. Like the, 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 we're gonna, we're on different tracks here, and it's that's interesting. Bit, I hadn't really thought about which, it that which way. Which comes back course. when he seeks his help later on. But um, it's what I think. The other thing I think is so. It's a, I think it's a good character. I think it's a, a it's perfect for for Denzel Washington at that time in his career. And I think what's so great about it is. It gives him the space to do to to display all of the qualities that that he that he you know is so good at as a leading man because this film has action, drama, romance, humor. It has an amazing courtroom scene where he does like a long speech oh, yeah. to the jury, and then towards the end of it, it's, he's melting down, you know, and you get the the, the kind of crazy Denzel, yeah. you know, he's like losing his mind because ending of, what of he's training been put day through. vibes, early so training he, day it's, vibes. So yeah. it's it's such a great role for an actor of his caliber because mm -hmm. he gets to show he really gets to show so many. Um, you know, uh, of his skills, right? You know, so it's a great. You can kind of see how this catapulted him to uh, becoming. A, you know, a, well, I wouldn't say this film catapulted him, but it certainly didn't hurt because it's a great way to show. Look, this Denzel Washington became one of the great actors of the last forty and years. action movie stars. Uh, exactly, that's what I was going to say. Sorry, both, in both in both in both lanes. No, no, not at all. In both lanes, as a dramatic actor and an action star he right. can do both and this film kind of uh shows uh, you know his his uh, capabilities in that regard yeah and i mean it's interesting you know to flash forward there's other films we're going to talk about uh that denzel is in uh off the top of my head crimson tide being mm -hmm. an obvious one are there any others oh yeah uh, basically yeah the equalizer tons. um man on fire Ooh, man on a movie fire. i'm absolutely obsessed with deja vu which I oh i love deja vu an extraordinary movie it's an amazing movie yeah. but <laughs> we'll, we'll get there later yeah. but i think crimson tide is an interesting thing to talk about because his performance in crimson tide is basically the first hour of this movie in the kind of character he plays yeah. measured modeled controlled Virtuous, modulated yeah know. got great values thinking man mm -hmm. questioning authority a little bit and sort of like having a little maybe even more in crimson tide there's a i don't know if it's an anti-authoritarian intelligent streak, but yeah sort yeah. of looking at these things and thinking through them yeah i mean he's great i mean denzel washington is one of the great you know movie stars i kind of you know uh, I, I saw him do he he said this thing i thought was very interesting recently i saw a clip of him as himself speaking about acting and he was saying that in his opinion 
There's no difference between stage acting and film acting. He was like, you just tell the truth. You tell the truth. And he was very in, mm. it, like intense about it. Mm. And it, he, it, it's a really amazing clip if you can find it. But it, it was just one of those things that illustrated, wow, even when he's not in character, this man has so much power yeah in his just how he how he, he it's almost like his words could bruise you because he's just got such potency in how he speaks yeah you know he's just he's such a, a tour de force even when he's just himself he's just got such natural authority right you know and he's so reputationally liked right i think it's just yeah, yeah i mean no one doesn't love him yeah I mean, he's you know, such a he's great just such an yeah, amazing you never hear me like i don't know about that denzel you know, washington no one has ever said like I don't like I don't like Denzel Washington as an actor or a person. Well, no one I don't think I've any, ever heard that he's sort of universally loved because he's so exceptional. He also draws a, an interesting comparison that we've talked about before, which is a great action movie star can also do Shakespeare. Because yeah. last year I think he appeared in a, a film version of a, the Scottish, the Scottish play. The play we won't say the name. Yeah. We can't. Still got those theater lovey yeah. <laughs> brainwashing. But um, is capable, and I've seen him play Brutus on Broadway and mm -hmm. Julius Caesar, and he's just he's capable of so much. And and I think he understands that the the need and and some of these films I would say Man on Fire included to be larger than life to yep. really like create a, a a hero who is you know he's just so good I mean look we're we spent ten minutes yep. talking about what Denzel Washington you guys everyone get knows he's, he's amazing he's amazing and this film is no exception the point being even in a film that is a little bit sort of uh, quote unquote lowbrow and lurid and it's kind of a B picture yeah he's still A plus you know yeah and I think. I think in terms of his comparison to McLean, he's like a nicer guy, right? He's like a, he's a nice, I mean, McLean is like a good guy, but Bruce Willis is not Denzel Washington in the sense that they, they bring different things to the role. Like mm. McLean is, you know, you watch, you watch Bruce Willis partially because you, 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 you want to watch him kind of like respond to a situation he's in and kind of be like, this fucking you know how boy. I would put that. It's really interesting what you're saying. Bruce Willis, New Jersey guy who reads kind of blue collar, but yeah. to me, Denzel Washington reads as regal. Oh, yeah. That's how I would describe him. Yeah. There's something about him that's You just... want to watch him take charge of a situation. Yeah. Whereas Bruce, you want to watch him be like this asshole talking about somebody, you know, somebody else in the room or they whatever just, the case. They just have a different energy. Yeah, they totally know? do. But they're both amazing and Bruce Willis right. born in Germany. Is that right? Yeah, he was born in... I don't think was he was... He I think he was... Military I think, brat? I think he might have been a military yeah. brat, but I've always been curious about the... I think he was oh. raised in Jersey, right? And he has a, a real East Coast... I mean, that's the best... One of the best things about yeah. him is yeah, he's yeah. kind of like, what the fuck in California? Exactly. You know, that kind of thing. Um, contrasting the great Denzel Washington is the equally great John Lithgow. And speaking of great stage actors. Oh, my God. You know? Amazing in everything. You know, he's had this interesting career now where he does a lot of prestige TV like The Crown. My wife was like, wait, is that? Um, who does he play on The Crown? He plays um, a Churchill. She's like, is that Winston Churchill from The Crown in, uh, in Ricochet? And I was like, yep, but this is a very different time for John Lithgow's career. He's got such range, but, yeah. you know, he's done, you know, I remember one of the first things I saw him as was, uh, it was in, in the UK, it was called Harry and the Hendersons. Here yes, of course. Big, Bigfoot yeah. and no, the Hendersons. No, it's called Harry and the Hendersons here. Was it? Oh, I thought yeah. it was called Big, Oh, no, known. sorry. The other, I'm getting it the other yeah. way around. It was called Bigfoot and the Hendersons in the UK. Yeah, Harry and the Hendersons. And, and he you know, punches he's the Harry. All American dad. Yeah. You know, and he was kind of, you know, he, he can be that, but he can also be absolutely, as he is in this movie, terrifying. Right. And, you know, we because Lithgow's six foot four. 
Right. You know, and this is a film that utilizes the fact that he is he's got size on him. He is a big, intimidating guy in right. this film. And he's, you know, obviously a lot younger. So he's, you know, he is really fearsome in this uh in this role. It, it's yeah. it's a it's it utilizes his physicality in an interesting way. One of the things that is interesting about what about Lithgow and Denzel Washington is you said, you know, Denzel Washington interview said it's there's no difference between stage acting and film acting, you just tell the truth. And I think Lithgow tells the truth as well. I think, you know, you can feel this this kind of reality in all his performances, even in some of the more preposterous ones, like 30 Rock from the Sun, right? He's a great comedic actor. Uh, he, I watched him recently in the Perry Mason series on HBO, and he's phenomenal in it. And you just feel like, in the case of that film, like a sad, sad person. In Cliffhanger, there's a bit of a Hans Gruber, you middle, middle European energy. But in this film, I think this is probably one of the most, ex- in a career of pretty out-there performances, this is an extreme performance, right? Yeah. And I feel like... One of the things that's interesting with this movie is like when it came out, look, there were a lot of questions about like racial antagonism in the movie or or maybe sexual questions of like sexual deviancy and all this sort of uh, substance of what the movie might be about and what some people found controversial about it. And mm-hmm. I think what's interesting is it feels as though Mulcahy said like, guys, lean into all of these like elements of what this movie is about. Like, yes, this is a, a revenge thriller or, or, but you guys like, lean into it. Like, don't, don't think about naturalistic psychology. Think about like creating the most extreme versions of your character, right? Which is not necessarily something that like we as watchers of things uh, that are often created like in a realistic, I don't want to say naturalism, but like, you know, most acting in movies is considered to be all about being realistic. My reactions to my scene partner are realistic. I know what I want from this scene. And it feels as though, okay, he was like, play the ego, like go as far as you possibly can. And he found two actors that, you know, really that I think that works really well with. And so some of the questions of what the film might be about are sort of embodied by the extreme choices that the people involved with this movie made. It's it's not interested in subtlety in any way, shape or form. And there's... To its sometimes I think to its benefit because it makes it like just wildly entertaining, and sometimes I think to its detriment. The scene that uh, that bothered me about that was the scene where Denzel does this, there's this amazing sort of Grisham-like courtroom speech to the right. jury, which is his sort of final words to the jury, and it's a great scene. But there's bits with the other lawyer screws up his paper and it's yeah, like yeah I wrote it down he crumples up his paper as if it's like oh all like, is lost Ugh. like you know I, I don't even have a chance against right. this speech and the, even the judge is looking at him like admiringly as if like my belief in the, in the law has been restored and it's just like you didn't need to do that. Yeah. Like so, don't tell us how to feel. We know how to feel because his speech is so powerful and it's a brilliant act of being very truthful. Um, the only thing I would say in... in he in, doesn't trust us to yeah. like get the point and that's yeah. that's like that annoys me a little bit as a as a viewer. And I and I think the only thing I would say in opposition to that is it feels intentional. Like it feels there's moments in this movie where you're like why what is what is why it's is this cartoonish? Here? It is cartoonish. You know? And and I totally it, it it's it's a difficult movie, right? But I again it's like you can sort of appreciate how 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 far it goes. So one of the things that I do think makes Blake and and uh, so interesting and entertaining 
is that he's clearly having fun being so appallingly evil. Right. And, and I think that is a quality that he shares with Gruber, but that's where the similarities end because he has none of great uh, of Gruber, uh, Gruber's um, grace or and he's never sophistication detached. or charm. Yeah, he also doesn't have his detachment because Gruber is not ideological. Mm. Gruber is like... It's business. Yeah, yeah. I'm making money. Right. Uh, he's like a post-Wall Street aspirant yuppie, but he's German, right? So it's like there's a little bit of this cultural disconnect because you think of those as the Ellis's of the world. He's mm. like Ellis but classist with taste. Mm-hmm. He's an elitist, right? This guy is like a psycho that wants revenge, a little bit in the sideshow Bob mentality. Like, you're not thinking about his suit or what he wears or his clothes or like, none of that stuff is resonant with this character. He's much more like of a of a one-note one character yeah, that, given dynamicism by an extraordinary actor. Yes, and he has zero redeeming qualities. Usually I would say most villains have like that little bit of grit in the oyster or just some l- moment that of the that might humanize them or dimensionalize yeah. them this this character and it's not actually a criticism i think it actually works in its favor yeah. it has none of that he's just unremittingly unrepentantly non-stop 100% evil 100% of the time there's there's not a single line i think where he treats anybody with anything less than contempt. utter contempt and hatred yeah even except in a weird perverse way Denzel Washington's children and babysitter. Oh, yeah. Who he's like weirdly tender with. But that's too... But it's so menacing and strange. But that's because it serves as an agenda. Serves as an agenda. But I want to bring up one thing. What did you think of his sidekick? Kim. Kim. His character is called Kim. He's played by Josh Evans. Do you know who Josh Evans is? No, who's Josh Evans? Hey, Phil, who's Josh Evans? Well, he is the... Uh, he's the son of Robert Evans and Ali McGraw. Whoa! Robert Evans being the f- famed uh, uh, studio, studio boss, hat, at, boss Paramount, at Paramount, the, the, Chinatown. He, he was um, just uh, uh, played by Matthew Good in the series The Offer. And wrote an amazing book brilliantly. called The Kid Stays in the Picture. Yeah, it's and a is documentary the as well. main figure, one of the main figures in the book, The Long Good. The Long Goodbye, which is about the making of Chinatown, which mm. by Sam Wasson, which is uh, one of my favorite books. Of so the last a Hollywood, a legendary Hollywood figure, yeah. and a legendary His Hollywood son. movie star, uh, yeah. Ali McGraw. Um, so who famously left Evans for uh, Steve McQueen um, when they met on the Getaway, the the uh, Peckinpah movie. So it's it's an interesting. Um, I'd leave Hollywood... someone for Steve McQueen. It's pretty hard. Yeah, or Carrie Lowell, but that's a separate. Tough that's a separate conversation. <laughs> tough situation. Um, so yeah, he basically the uh, the old Talbot Blake character has this sort of bootlicking sidekick, mm. but it does have a slight like. Sexual, obsessive homo yeah, erotic it, it, relationship just, yeah it, there is some and, and one of the things you know we, you you touched on the sort of potential idea of the the sexuality that may or may not be going on in this film it, it kind of dances around it you yeah. know it sort of dances around that that issue but when that was drawn to my attention i looked at it again sort of through that lens and the first thing that blake says to this character kim is what do i have to do to get you to shut up tie you up and gag you. Yeah. And that was a line that I just didn't just washed over me. But then when I looked at it and I thought, hang on a minute, is there yeah. something more going on between these two characters? Yeah. And it's it because it's almost that he's such a, he's such a sycophant, uh, this Kim character, the whole, about how appallingly he's being treated. Yeah. It's like an abusive relationship in a weird way well there's know? something renfield dracula yes, about it too great, like that's what that's i thought a, a lot of it is like he's possessed and like there's something dracula vlad the impaler mm. uh, about 
Lithgow's character yeah. in this movie. And this is kind of what I mean where I say like the subtext is the text in this movie. You know, there's like, there's a really strange scene in this movie that I just want to touch on, which is when Denzel Washington is sort of, after he's been like literally sexually assaulted and psychologically assaulted and is uh, like at the lowest point in this movie, he's watching TV and he watches this very bizarre like public access yep. late night TV show where uh, where uh, an African-American man is rambling about... Uh, I believe AIDS is it about people putting AIDS in vending machines? Vending it's machines. like a bizarre yeah. conspiracy theory. And, like there's 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 corollaries probably with like you know topical things in the conversation around AIDS and, and when this film came out in the '90s and and but it's this weird scene where like are we supposed to assume that Denzel Washington this is like some kind of example of the psychosis that Denzel Washington has experienced is like it's because he's paranoid and he's delusional and it's like it's again this thing where like Russell Mulcahy was like let's not be subtle about anything in this movie and and as a result some of the things that the film could be about whether it's race or sexuality become like lurid plot points which yeah. is which the, the I don't taste taste is strange and, and it's very provocative, but yeah. not necessarily in, in, in a way that's kind of a, a bit offensive at times, I would say. Especially 30 years later, yeah. right? And it it there's a lot, like, there's things you could speak about, that, but I don't know what there is to say because they're so on the surface. It's so superficial. Um, and, you know, there's probably an academic or intellectual reading of it that is more complicated. But, like, in terms of an action picture, it's it's not that I you don't want uh, an action picture to be complicated. I think that's absolutely not true. I think that the human dynamics are really interesting. But this movie just spends a lot of time putting, sort of rubbing your face in it. And yeah. another interesting example is um, the that character's name, Josh Evans' character's Kim. name. Kim takes Earl Talbot Blake to a bar that's, uh, yeah. like, you know... A sex club, some kind there's of SNM fetish, fetish club, club or and something. Like, yeah. yeah, Earl Tabbitt, like I think, tellingly is like disgusted by it. So mm. you you got to wonder, like, what does that say about his psychology and is is you know these things? And you know, you pointed out <clears throat> that there might be a in the film like a, a weird equivalency between homosexuality and deviancy that that is going on. I in think the that's film. what the film tries it, to its massive detriment. This was a period of Hollywood where um, there were the I think the portrayal of non uh, non heterosexual characters yeah. was particularly was particularly egregious. That reached its its zenith with probably with Basic Instinct, which which of course nineteen ninety two the next year, yeah. which which had a lot of uh, protests because people were very upset about its portrayal of um, bisexual characters and whatnot. And that this was a period in Hollywood where I think there was sort of Unfortunately, these films were, were potentially drawing an equivalency between non-heterosexual, um, you know, lifestyle and, you know, something, um, you know, deviancy or Im immorality. That's what these films were often doing, which which was no wonder why it was a cause for consternation amongst that the you know the sort of non-heterosexual community. And we're two years away from and the band played on the HBO movie about and Philadelphia. Yeah, as and well, so sort of this like sort of changed the tide, probably much I would say. needed re. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. It kind of a, it's also starring Denzel Washington. Yeah, which maybe created this like much needed reappraisal of how this stuff is addressed, right? Mm. And it's it's hard to look at a movie thirty years ago and go like, Ugh, but like the this is not this movie. Okay, let's put it another way. This movie doesn't like play. 
30 years later uh, as well as maybe it did. And we're, we're thinking about different things. Like the yes. culture has thankfully moved on away from, in some ways, from some of this thinking, right? Yeah. Especially Hollywood representation. I mean, it's not overt, but I think I think there is an undercurrent there that if you look at it through that lens, you can kind of see that m maybe it was cut out or maybe it was toned down or maybe even it was something like an actor's secret, you know, that yeah. this was something that uh, was was being, being played. But I think the Renfield um, Dracula thing is spot on, actually. There may or may not be a sexual undercurrent, you know, it's not for us to adjudicate, but uh, it does sort of uh, hint at it without committing to it. Well, and also to speak to like Dracula, the Francis Ford Coppola's movie Dracula, which I think is a masterpiece, yeah. comes out in this period, and it's like pretty horny. Like that's mm -hmm. a horny movie that 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 suggests a lot of sexual relationships that I don't think were, you know, necessarily writ large in Bram Stoker's book. Not that they weren't there, but like the movie sort of capitalizes on the sexuality of Dracula. So there's an interesting correlation in there. But I, I think, yeah, I mean, I didn't think of it until now, but Renfield Dracula is an interesting comparison. I also think to jump categories for a second in terms of humor, mm. there's not that much humor in this movie. The one, the one character that brings probably the most of it is uh, Kevin Pollock's right. character. Right, but it's so dry. The thing you know? that I find, so Kevin Pollock plays a character called Lieutenant Larry Doyle, mm -hmm. who is um, Denzel Washington's um, sort of partner and friend. Um, and I think he's great in the scenes where he, he's, it's natural. But Kevin Pollock, sometimes I, like, there's, there's moments where like he shoehorns in a Shatner impression that feels completely out of like, yeah. it, it's, it's not, it doesn't feel in any way natural, but in his defense, this was something that if you look at a lot of Joel Silver pictures, it was something he would jam in there. Like The wise have, cracking sidekick. He, well, he would have comics do their shtick. Like right. Den, Den, Dennis Leary in Demolition Man. It right. just has a whole oh, bit yeah. where he basically does his shtick and Chris Rock in Lethal Weapon 4. They just do like their stand-up routine and they just find a way to try and weave it in and often it feels a little bit like incongruent to me it kind, yeah. of, it kind of like the movie skids a little bit yeah um it's again I, a tonal uh yeah skid it's a it's a little bit of like a what, what's this doing here yeah just but i i think you know i think he's good brief good in the movie kevin pollock appreciation moment a movie we won't talk about because it doesn't fit the usual suspects he's, what where i would he, say his best performance where he's being interrogated by the police and they go we can put you in queens in the night of the robbery and he goes really I live in Queens. What do you got? A team of monkeys working on this around the clock. He's brilliant. In that. It's truly one of the funniest. Uh, it's yeah. So when when he isn't playing for laughs, right? I think he's funnier actually. Yeah, but if we were doing the usual suspects, that would win best quip. Oh, it's full of them. Uh, action. Good action in this movie. Enjoyable action. Visceral action. Yeah, visceral is a good word for yeah, this film. Um, not general. exciting, but extreme, and at times maybe intentionally haphazard. I mean, I think that scene at the beginning that is is the catalytic event for the movie where uh, Denzel Washington takes down um, Blake. Yeah. Um, that scene, so basically to set the scene there, it's a, like a, a sort of a carnival type event and Denzel's there with Kevin Pollock and they're just walking their beats. It's this Festival of St. Gennaro. Right, okay, forgive yeah. me. I didn't know the exact okay. thing, thing that it was. Where is that? What is that? What, what is it's that? a big Italian festival that, uh, it's really big in New York City. I, 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 that's actually the first, because this film takes place in LA, but it, it has to do with this, a specific Italian saint. I don't know too much about it, but I do know that it's often celebrated in a way where like you have, you know, different types of food, different kind of things. It's a street festival, essentially. Right, a festival. Yeah, yeah I was yeah. using the wrong term. But basically, in the back, they're just walking their beat and then, 
um, Blake uh, is is trying to uh, take down a drug deal, right? Which is uh, an inside job, and he's using he's working with Kim. One of those actors um, is uh, the the cocaine guy from Clear and Present Danger, Miguel he's, Sandoval. Miguel Sandoval, he's, he's a great, great actor, great actor. Yeah, 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 yeah. amazing. Can't work. wait to talk about Clear and yeah. Present Danger. Um, and that kind of goes bad, and and as as Blake is trying to escape, Denzel intercepts him, mm. and there's a standoff. And ultimately, it leads to him, Janzel, like stripping off his clothes, mm. which has also got a little bit of a, you know, is that why do why that? does he take his clothes off? Why do that? Yeah, to distract him, like what? What? Or you well, know. it's also because six pack abs, baby. I, mean, I bet Joel Silver was like, dude, you look great. <laughs> you, you, you look great. And he ends up pulling a, a gun from his a hidden gun from his jock strap. I mean, this, you know, if you were to do a Freudian analysis of this, it's pretty. I generally take mine out before I podcast, <laughs> personally. The backup piece. Yeah. Look, it's weird because the. Because it's it's you spend a lot of time puzzling over what you're watching as opposed to being like really rooted in. There's a there's a later sort of mo, um, prison riot sequence that's a little bizarre where they escape from the prison and like I don't I don't think this is a great action movie to be totally honest. I, I, no, and and some of the violence is more psychological violence or unusual violence. Like there's a bit where he's shot with a a speedball of, of, of heroin, um, which reminded me of like French Connection Two. Oh, good movie, you know, which I love. Yeah. Um, so it's some things like that where the violence is is sort of unusual or, or weirdly sort of creative in a horrific way. But one of the other things, and I think there's also an interesting like there's, there's that crazy scene with Jesse Ventura who is in this movie. Just oh, the gladiator the, fight in the prison. Yeah, which is from the director of Highlander, so it kind of makes sense that there's this weird sword fight kind of sequence. But it, it again, as you said, it, you're puzzling over what you're watching because they're strapped with like yellow pages, well, like another, books yeah. and and as armor and fighting to the death in like there's no guards around it's it's just this movie doesn't take place in the real world it doesn't and what interesting to note there is At that times. he he he's aided and abetted earl tabbit blake is aided and abetted by escape by the white supremacist right. prisoners but the movie whether or not it should doesn't do anything with that it's interesting that blake does not uh, identify as a white supremacist. There's no attempt at like applying like race or politics to him as a character or rate. Ra I guess I should say like racial, racial, you know, opinions or like he's not. It's he it never, doesn't affect his motivation. Yeah, and he doesn't as say far in, as we can see. His behavior says something, but his but he's not like doesn't speak about being racist or any of these things. Like he's just kind of this like empty slate, yeah. except obsessed with revenge. Yeah. Whereas like, you know, we mentioned Cape Fear earlier. One of the best scenes in Cape Fear is when De Niro is in the movie theater cackling Laughling. with yeah, laughter. Yeah, yeah. You get like a sense of personality. Like you could see the guy kind of like existing in the real world. As you pointed out, it's hard to feel that way about this character. It's it's slightly comic book. It's slightly right. yeah. It's it's slightly outside reality. What's well, slightly but, horror movie actually? Yeah, and but yet that's what's kind of part of the tension of the film because Denzel Washington is in a realistic thriller, and because he is incapable well of playing anything other than the truth. Right. And some of the other people and and the direction speaks to more a comic book, over the top, lurid, melodramatic shit show well to your point you know? there's a later in the film there's a middle section where he's where Denzel's pretty melodramatic completely convincingly so where he's kind of like talking to himself and crazy the situation and so demands it so yeah. it feels honest but then at the end there's a sequence where he's on the tower threatening oh, suicide right, right. Because he, and, and Talbot bizarrely doesn't want him Errol Talbot Blake does bizarrely does not want him to kill himself because that would not like fit in with his plan 
which was criticized, by the way, in some reviews. Like, like I actually think Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make it's sense. Like, who cares? Who cares? Yeah, at this point, his life is destroyed. Yeah. But it's all a performance. Denzel Washington yeah, yeah. is faking it. He's actually, like, restored his faculties at this point in the movie. So the scene where he's this most insane is Nick Stiles giving a performance to convince exactly. yeah. John Lithgow yeah. that he's crazy. Now, the other thing I would say about the finale of this film that is is interesting, because so the, the events lead to... Uh, the Watts Towers, which are um, an you know an institution I- iconic um, yeah. in in LA, um, they're also they're part of the story because um, Nick Styles is trying to um, use that as the basis for I think for a community right. center that he's building. So the Watts Towers are set up, um, and if you're not familiar with them, they're these sort of gigantic metal uh, structures that almost look like pylons mm-hmm. um, reaching reaching into the sky. And so th- that's where events end up um, at the at the end of the movie, with Denzel climbing up that uh, tower. Now I don't know if you noticed this, but he's wearing a white vest. I did not notice that. Yeah. And there's a helicopter circling overhead. Oh. Right? This is total diehard die land. Diehard DNA. <laughs> now, apparently, Joel Silver, you know, we talked a lot about helicopters and how much I love them. Apparently, Joel Silver insisted all his films have helicopters in them at some point. Is, are um, you sure? Have you checked tracks. into your parentage? Have you looked into, like, <laughs> Dad? Dad? <laughs> Next time you see Joel Silver walking down Melrose, you got to be like, Dad? I've got a costume. Yeah, you're wearing a last boy set, your ricochet pants, your Die Hard hat. It is, it is weird, but yes. And, and then, again, like Die Hard, um, you know, spoiler alert, the villain falls to his death from a great height. You know, right. while a helicopter circles above LA in the sky. So the coda, and also, yeah, not only just that, but the coda, the epilogue with the hero getting their own back on the sleazy tabloid journalist in the, in the what aftermath. What does he say to her? He says, um, like, are we live or whatever? And then he said, okay, good. Like, Gail, kiss my ass. That's the last line of the movie. The last line that, that which gives you. Which uh, appears over black. Which, which gives you a sense of how uh, integral the Gail Wallins character is. Into this story, the the last thing that the hero yeah. says is basically an fu to her her character, who's been this annoying, unethical reporter. I think I brought this up with Die Hard, but the media does not get necessarily the best portrayal in any of these movies. And there's something, maybe this is superficial, but there's something Paul Verhoeven esque in the yes. way that Joel Silver engages media and that like you often see it on a screen you're often not actually with the characters De Palma does this also in um Bonfire of the Vanities right like it's kind of like we are aware of the apparatus of the television or whatever the we we watch you know we're in the studio sometimes but we're also just watching it on a tv from some other point so we're a little stepped back from it and I don't think he has like a great opinion of how these events are, are portrayed well I wanted to talk about that just for a moment and then I think we could we can yeah. move on but I think it's this is significant because it's directly relevant to Die Hard right the Gail Wallen's character who connects this movie to Die Hard, her brief part in, in Die Hard where she's a, a news news anchor, she's sort of quite likable and it's it's fairly light and it's a fairly brief moment. But we have to remember, like, that channel is like, is sleazy tabloid journalism. Richard right? Thorn- Dick, Dick Thornburg's Dick channel. It's what Dick Thornburg works for. Yeah. They're idiots and they're, they're just like opportunistic, like it's the lowest of the low tabloid television. So it right. makes sense. She is a colleague of Dick Thornburg. They swim in the same water. It's so, like Nightcrawler, the so, Jake Gyllenhaal yeah, so film. Exactly. So the fact that she's out there like shoving a camera in his face at the worst moments and asking inflammatory questions and trying it's to gotcha sh- shape, journalism. shape yeah. the narrative... 
um, to make him look bad makes sense because she is like a, a, a you know a colleague of Dick Thornburg, so she's right. from that school of journalism. Right. So yeah, you know, one thing that this conversation has brought up, and and I is that the one thing that we haven't talked a lot about is the relationship. We've talked about it, but not a lot. Is Ice T and Denzel Washington's relationship, and how one is sort of like on the on the on the quote unquote right side of the tracks, and Denzel, and that he's he's career focused, and he's he's becoming part of the of uh you know becoming a DA and wanting to do good and open a center, and his dad is a preacher, right? And he has to at the beginning of the film he rejects. Ice T's kind of like lifestyle choices, right? And at mm -hmm. a certain point in the film, he goes to one of the the towers to talk to Ice T because he he needs help getting Earl Tabbit Blake. And there's a sequence where there's like a uh, there's a sort of a standoff where all of Ice T's men's pull out a gun and Washington pulls out a grenade and pulls out the pin. Mm -hmm. And like there's a bit of a standoff in that moment. And so they're they're naturally antagonistic towards each other, but at the end, one of the final things that happens story-wise in the movie is that they decide to play basketball together again. So I wonder if the, there's a thematic idea of compromise in this movie that like there are degradations of evil in society and like Talbot is the most extreme version of like a nihilistic uh, life is about revenge, whereas maybe Denzel Washington learns as like, you know, an aspirant politician that like maybe that not only do you have to work both sides, but like, there is a need for community to kind of combat the most extreme. I mean, this is a very mm. simple reading, it's but the it's enemy something of, about... The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Right, well. and, and we, we have to live on like a spectrum of humanity in terms right. of how we do things. And... I mean, yeah, I wouldn't say this is this is a nuanced look at the social political fabric of Los Angeles. No, but it is um, it is interesting to acknowledge it, especially as it relates to things like public housing and and these towers and all these, these elements that kind of exist. It, touch, and... it touches on it, but I don't think it's terribly interested no. in uh, exploring it. And I think it's, it's... Which might be why it's a little problematic in that it touches on these things, but doesn't... Well, yeah, it, it, does, it just paints them, them in a yeah, broad stroke. It has no, there's nothing behind it because it's not trying to make any point. It's just throwing a bunch of inflammatory, provocative... Uh, elements at you as this as a basically a simple revenge thriller plays out. This movie is a doozy. It's real um, doozy. By the way, I do kind of dig this movie. <laughs> I think it's I th well, I think it's you worth know? watching. I mean, look, we set out with this podcast. It's entertaining, and we also set out. It's entertaining. It's fun to watch in a lurid way, and also we set out to say that like action movies matter, and so there's you know yeah. there's resonances yeah. in every movie, even if you know similar with Toy Soldiers, where we kind of came upon the Peter Pan conclusion of it, right? Well, you like, did. I thought it was a very astute, well, thank, thank a very you, astute analysis. Thank you, Bill. <laughs> Let's talk some awards. Yay! Get the tuxes out. Get them out. <clears throat> okay. Okay. All right, Your it's shoes. time for, what are you wearing tonight? What are you wearing? What are you wearing? Uh, I'm wearing Phil Gawthorne, <laughs> which means I'm wearing the last Boy, Boy Scout t-shirt, some uh, ricochet track and the bracelets pants. that I had to take yeah. off because they were making too much noise. Yeah, it's because um, they were making too much noise. <laughs> okay. Just kidding. Um, the Die Hard It's Oscars. actually quite a sharp shirt you're wearing. Uh, you're yeah. shirt wearing Thank you. Your, yeah. Thank Go you. ahead. Um, okay, the John McClane Yippie Kaye Award for Best Quip. Um, I genuinely have no idea. Okay, I have a few nominees. Okay. All um, pretty hateful. Here's one. Just, okay. The parole board's ready, Blake. I hope you remembered to floss. Yeah, with your <laughs> wife's pubic hair. Gross, dude. But who also, I mean, that's like, who has ever said, oh, you've got that important interview. I hope you remembered to floss. It's Has anyone it's, ever said it's kinda that? It's kind of dumb. It's like no, dumb. it's just a setup for a really, really like upsetting. Yeah, with your line. wife's pubic hair. But that gives you a sense of just how coarse this character yeah. is. He's just, he's just constantly like saying the most appalling things. Yeah. In the same scene, when he goes to that parole board hearing, this is the exchange of dialogue. 
Well, Mr. Blake, what will you do if you get out of prison? Says the parole board chairman. <laughs> well, I guess, Mr. Chairman, that first I'll pay a visit to your house. To thank me, I suppose. No, to fuck your wife and your daughter. Hell, maybe even your dog. That's... <laughs> Can we just not give the award this time? All right, we'll move on. The last one I would say that I actually thought was the best line that kind of summarizes yeah. the theme and the thrust of the movie is when Blake says, uh, I'm going to do something far worse than kill you. I'm going to let you live. That's I probably, that that's a good, a good line. line. So that's that would good be line. my let's give Let's give it to that one. Yeah. Right. Also, because I don't want to talk about this anymore. No, it's, pretty, it's pretty horrendous. <laughs> the Hans Gruber <laughs> Exceptional Thief Award for stealing the film. And our nominees are... Give it to me. John Lithgow as Earl Talbot Blake. Victoria Dillard as Alice, Nick's wife. Oh, she's very good. I really like, yeah. I really like her. Good I actress. I her a lot in uh, Deep Cover. Ice-T oh, yeah. as Odessa, Nick's old buddy from the streets, now the local drug kingpin. Kevin Pollock as Larry Doyle, Nick's friend and LAPD partner. Can I offer one Please? more? John Amos as PK's dad, as Nick Styles' dad. If only because he, it's nice to see John Amos not play a blowhard and like, you know, kind of do something a little more like... A softer. Softer, and like a fatherly, paternal yeah. kind of thing. Uh, however, I think... The choice is Ice T. I think Ice T oh, really? walks away with it. Yeah, because he's Ice T. He's such an icon, man. He's so great. He has a he has a song at the end of the movie that's called Ricochet, um, which yeah, is fun. That's true. That's true. I I do want to. Yeah, I think Victoria Dillard is really strong in the movie. I think it's a it's a typical Joel Silver strong female character decision that he's made. She doesn't feel so like. She 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 feels as someone who tells Nick Styles how it is, right? It, it's it's I, again, it's it's not the most dimensional, interesting thing, but it's not a sh shrieking violence. I find what I find happens a lot in the in Joel Silver's films, which generally are not uh, particularly Females, kind yeah. to to the female characters, especially in the next one. Wait till we talk do. about Last Boy Scout. Um, but what often in the, what I will say is happens as happens in this case is often the the actor, the actress. Um, does a lot with a little. Yes, hundred percent. I, I Good think casting. She's wonderful in this. Who cast um, not this a great film? part? Um, was it was it um, was it the same casting? I think it was. Was it Jackie Birch again? Yeah, I think or it was. Jackie it may Birch. not. It may not have been. I mean, I'd these, these people, um, this, these people, the people that cast these movies deserve an Academy Award. I mean, like, it's the casting is amazing. She, Victoria Dillard is wonderful in this movie. Maybe she steals it, but I, I, I don't know. Ice T just looms so large. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Um... Okay, the Dick Thornburg Award for Dick of the Movie. Everyone in this movie except Denzel Washington <laughs> and Victoria Dillard. Uh, it's Lithgow. Okay. Who is it? Is it, well, is it Kim? No, my nominee, yeah, my nominee, Kim, Sorry. Was, Kim was on there. Um, who is uh, uh, Blake's bootlick and sidekick? Sherman Howard as Kylie, the defense attorney turned prosecutor. Uh, that, what other movie is that guy uh, in? I don't know. I didn't recognize him. I've seen him, him in a actually. couple things, yeah. Um, my winner would be. Mary Ellen Trainer as reporter Gail Wallace. Yeah, you're right. That's it. Because it 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 also reveals maybe a thematically interesting thing yeah. about the movie, which is that the media is uh doesn't tell the truth. Yeah. Um that's not the statement that we're saying, no. by the way. I, I suddenly felt we were, To be clear. This has become a, a, yeah. a super right wing yeah, 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 you know what, podcast. Welcome the back. The media doesn't tell Look, the truth. They're lying to not, you. No, I think that there is a bit of media distrust in the this film specifically. But there's but Let's be fair. There's a distrust of everyone in this movie. This yeah. is not a movie that has like a good opinion about anybody. It's a totally amoral universe. Yeah. Um, best death presented by Marco. Oh. No more table. 
There are some spoilers here, but you probably okay. It's fine. Know. If you've gotten this, we've gotten an hour and ten minutes <laughs> of the podcast, and you haven't seen this movie, I'm well. Thank you. Please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. What are the best deaths? All right, my nominees are the Highlander-esque prison sword fight where Blake kills Chowalski with a sword. That's Jesse Ventura. White supremacist named Chowalski. Okay, keep going. Don't don't screw. Don't overthink it. it. Yeah, <laughs> sure. <laughs> Yeah. All right. Jesse Ventura is in this movie. That's true. For so 14 this... seconds. I didn't even realize it was him. Yeah. Uncredited, I think. Um, the, <laughs> he didn't the, want to put um, Chowalski on his resume, <laughs> I guess. The, the Parole Board Massacre featuring Death by Buzzsaw. Did you enjoy that? Yeah, that was good. Um, Oof, that was awful. That was really, really like, even I was like, I fall asleep to these action do you movies think and that, I was cringing at that. Do you think the parole board walked in they were like, why are we in the room where they're doing Absolutely construction? ridiculous. It's What's... like, let's hand chainsaws out to these um, you know, yeah. murder You know who seems to be okay inmates. is these, these uh, first degree murder triple homicide <laughs> guys. Let's, let's give maximum them, yeah. security. They you think just, we should, yeah, hey Bill, Bill do you think we should give this guy a chainsaw? What could go wrong? Yeah, ludicrous. Um, Blake ambushing Kevin Pollock in the alley. Oh, that's a tough scene. Um, and Blake's grisly demise. I'm going to go with the, the the alley thing because an attempt, I agree. to attempt to answer the sort of thing about what this film could be about, I think one of the things that is powerful is that you do have the feeling of like, why won't anybody believe Nick Stiles? So when the one person that believes him is like brutally shot to death 14 times or whatever it is, it it hits. It's a, it's a, it's, I thought that was excellent scene, yeah, actually. Yeah, it really, is really well strong. choreographed and well thought through and um, really, really good. Uh, that would be my that would be Yeah, my I winner. think that's, that's the best death. Um, all right, Double Jeopardy. Let's do it. All right, and remember, this is for our viewers at home. Okay, so I'll viewers, take a pause. Listeners. listeners. Um, okay. Wait, are these people watching this? <laughs> I hope not. Like... <laughs> all right, question number one. What about pants? All right, on. now this is going back to uh, someone we spoke about earlier. Okay. The story for Rick. Whoa, that was weird. The story. For Ricochet. He's had a really <laughs> high... Story. <laughs> Welcome to Die Hard on a Blank. I'm The feeling... story for Ricochet. <laughs> send in is... the car. Send in the car. I'm super macho. Don't worry about uh, yeah. it. The story for Ricochet so is co-credited to Fred Decker, Woo. who is well known for his frequent collaborations with Shane Black, with whom he co-wrote the recent movie, The Predator. But in 1993, Decker directed the third film in another major sci-fi action franchise. Can you name that film? When there is a clue available, you can yeah, I want a, a clue. I want a clue. Right. I think I know what it is, but I could be wrong. The clue is the first film in this series was directed by Paul Verhoeven. Oh, RoboCop 3. Yes. Yeah. So for a weird second, I was like, is there a third Highlander movie that I'm not aware of? Um, so here's my review of RoboCop 3. It makes RoboCop 2 look like RoboCop 1. <laughs> Moving on. There's a lot of people that like those later RoboCop movies. I like RoboCop 2. It, actually, it's weirdly similar to Ricochet in this. It's utterly morally repellent worldview that it has. And well, so, like, does, so does RoboCop. Wallows in, in, yes, but there's, there's a sort Sociopolitical of, context to there's that There's a movie. wit and a, a levity to the original RoboCop that the sequel just doesn't have in it's quite also the same very, way, but I, I do like yeah. RoboCop too. I think RoboCop is a borderline perfect movie. Oh, yeah. yeah. But RoboCop Paul, 3, I'm sorry to say, is not. Paul Verhoeven forever. Um, okay. Number two. Before Joel Silver's involvement, Fred Decker originally envisioned Ricochet as a sequel to a series of movies about a brutal, rule-breaking San Francisco detective. Dirty Harry. Is the right Sorry, answer. Sorry. Jump in the gun. Room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah no. um, well, It'd be a, a weird sequel yeah, to yeah. Dirty Harry. Do you like Dirty Harry? Of course. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean... Talk about something that has aged weirdly. Uh, yeah, that's what I was about to say. I did watch it recently. It was like, ooh. Yeah. Probs. I mean, Clint made so many amazing movies, but they're just of their time. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. It's great, though. I mean, uh, you know, yeah, the politics of it, not so much, but as a, as a piece of entertainment, you yeah. know, amazing character. Also and, cool, the, the whole tracking down the serial killer element's really interesting. One of the things that I love, though, about, about Dirty Harry is that Cobra features is, is like a Dirty Harry movie in the 80s, and two of the cast members are, are from Dirty Harry are in yeah. Cobra, one of them basically playing the same character. Yeah. That's um, weird. Anyway, cinematic the, universes. <laughs> speaking of, and our final question is the other credited co writer on Ricochet is Menno Majes. Forgive me if I'm mispronouncing his name, who would go on to write another action thriller starring Denzel Washington and Bruce Willis. Can you name that film? And again, there is a clue available. Yeah, a clue available. I can't believe I'm not just pulling this out, but give me the clue. It's not the most obvious one. All right. The film was released in 1998. It was set in New York, and it also starred Annette Bening as a CIA agent. Oh, The Siege. Yay! Yes! Yes! The Siege is good. I like Edward Siege. Edward's Wick. And it's really, you know, really Also, weirdly, like, I bet if you watch it now, you'd be like, oof. Yeah, but I wouldn't say, I don't, yeah, I don't know. Well, that's one that I want to do, actually. Yeah, so we, we talk we can, about it. You know, we can, but if um, we're going to do a movie where a whole city then. gets taken over, then we have to watch The Dark Knight Rises. Okay. We we have to. All it's right. just a rule. Final thoughts rating the movie. My my yeah my just one liner on this is it's a seedy, mean spirited action thriller elevated by two excellent performances by Washington and, and Lithgow. Look, watch it. You've probably never seen anything like it. You might not see anything like it again. And I think to credit you know, people who like the film, it it's 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 naughty and and maybe maybe not complicated, but there's some things in it that are interesting and like. The, again, it's Denzel Washington and Lithgow pitch perfect in a movie where they could not have been. So, like, purely as just a uh, look at craft, the craft is really strong. And the director, Muscle K Russell Mulcahy, who we didn't talk about so much, really knows what he's doing, whether that works for you or not. I admire the commitment to the vision. There's one scene in it which I thought was really superbly directed, just to cap off this, which is when he, he thinks that he's shown him the video and um, then Denzel's, like, running out of the house and the way that the camera moves and oh, like that pulls bull, down the yeah. street is really dynamic. And also, Denzel is wearing a pink robe that he may have borrowed from Brad Wesley from Roadhouse. So, and I'm all here for a pink robe. You love a pink robe. He's wearing one right now. That's <laughs> uh, <Hence> why my... <laughs> listen, if you've gotten this far into this episode on Ricochet, you probably enjoy this podcast. So please rate, review, subscribe. Wherever you listen to podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, it's good. Helps the show climb the ratings. More people will hear it. Um, tell if you have a friend that likes action movies, tell them about it. That is the most important thing you can do is tell your friends to listen to this podcast. That's how the show grows. That's how that happens. It's super, super helpful. If you want to talk to us, you can find me on Twitter at Liam G. Billingham. And I'm also on Letterboxd where I am making a list of every film that we talk about in this podcast, and you can find links to the to show there as well. And you can also email us at diehardoab at gmail.com. Let us know what you think of the film. If you have thoughts on Ricochet, I actually really want to hear them. I'd love and to I, get some love, going on Twitter. Yeah, I'd love to, I'd love to you know, I'd love to talk more about this movie. You can email us. Uh, Phil, you're on Twitter? I'm on Twitter, Philip, just at Philip Gawthorn. Yeah, right. And you can complicated. follow the podcast on Twitter and um, Instagram at, at DieHardOAB. Let's talk about Roadhouse. Let's talk about Roadhouse. Yeah, let's but talk also, about Pink Roads. Let's talk about Ricochet. 
because uh, there's there's something there's something something's going on. Something's going on. <laughs> we don't know what it is. We spent an hour and a we half discussing. But it. I we... think it's worthy of the discussion. Speaking of worthy of discussion, what film are we talking about next, Phil? The Last Boy Scout. It's our first Tony Scott. Inject it into my soul. Yeah, this is uh Phil watched this movie the whole time went, Dad? Uh, I'm Liam Billingham. I'm Philip Gawthorne. We'll be back next time with some new FBI guys, I guess. Die Hard on a Blank is a podcast hosted and written by Philip Gawthorne. Liam Billingham co-hosts and produces the show. Mike Mayer and Michael Sugar are the executive producers. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at DieHardOAB. Please rate, review, and subscribe and follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks to Suki Chu and the whole team at Sugar23. See you next time on Die Hard on a Blank. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.